You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. The direction that we're heading is already one where renewables, they're just going to dominate capacity emissions. Coal is likely to go into structural decline and its share in the global energy mix is just going to decline. The coal miners are just dinosaurs waiting to die. For March 2nd, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Green bonds, debt instruments designed to raise capital for investment in climate solutions, are growing quickly now, 14 years after the first such bond was issued. Also known as climate bonds, the green bond sector saw half a trillion dollars in capital flow into it in 2021 and could double again this year. So there's no doubt that it's making a big impact in addressing climate change. Or is there? It's not a trivial question because there's a whole range of things that green bond proceeds and companies might invest in, and some of them might not be so green at all. How can investors tell the difference between a purported green bond issued by a coal or oil company and one offered by a solar company? To help make these distinctions, an emerging industry of external reviewers has sprung up to offer so-called second opinions on these instruments and companies, which fund managers and other investors can then use to decide whether those investments meet their eligibility criteria. In this episode, we speak with the co-founder of one of those organizations, Cicero Shades of Green. Krista Clapp formerly led the research on climate finance at the Cicero Climate Research Institute, and if that sounds familiar, it may be because we had Cicero's Glenn Peters on the show in episodes 57 and 112, which are part of our climate science mini-series. Krista has over 20 years of experience in climate policy and economic analysis, including roles at the OECD and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. She's also a lead author on finance and investment for the forthcoming IPCC's sixth assessment report on climate mitigation. She's an excellent expert to explain the state of the art in Green Bond's second opinions, and it's a real privilege to have her on the show. Then in the news segment, we'll take note of a new activist fund that sells short the losers of the energy transition. We'll check out the latest data on global investment in the energy transition. We'll see how the green bond sector is advancing. We'll recognize a new partnership building charging infrastructure for medium and heavy-duty electric vehicles. And we'll review the figures on China's deployment of renewables in 2021. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, announcements, announcements... We're pleased to welcome the Michigan Technological University to our ever-growing roster of site licensees. They have several professors who have been using the show as coursework, and we're so pleased that they're making the show available to the whole student body as they train the engineers of the energy transition. So welcome, Huskies. And now, our conversation with Krista Clapp, recorded February 2nd, 2022. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Krista, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. Today, we're going to talk about your work with the Cicero Shades of Green group, of which you are a co-founder. And according to your website, your group, quote, provides independent research-based evaluations of green sustainability and sustainability-linked financing frameworks and climate risk assessments of companies. Perhaps you'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about your role in the green investment rating sector to get us started. Yes, of course. What we do really is environmental due diligence on financial products. So that's maybe a simpler way to say it. So mm. if an investor wants to buy a green bond, how would they know it's green other than the issuer saying, I think this is green? Right. We're that independent party saying, based on our 
scientific expertise and being integrated with the climate science that we do think it's green or we don't. And so we have, I think, an important role in the market as being one of those first checks against greenwashing. And it actually started, it's an interesting story because it started back in 2008 with the first green labeled green bond. And that was issued by the World Bank. And they were pushed to issue something with a green label out of the interest of investors. And some of those investors, as I understand it, were Swedish pension funds that were really interested in moving into more sustainable financial products in their pension portfolios. Hmm. So they pushed the World Bank issuance to be labeled. And then the investor said, but wait a minute, the World Bank is saying this is green, but can we really trust that? They have a vested interest in trying to get a good financing deal on this. And so there was a phone call made to Cicero Research Institute based here in Norway, where I'm located. This was before I was on board. So it was to my colleague saying, can you give us an opinion on this? And this is very interesting for researchers because here's a real life example where we can apply research and help investors make their decisions. So there was a very short little two-page report sent to the investors from Cicero, and that set up the model that is used as best practice today throughout the global green bond market of having that third-party review. Interesting. Yeah, so it's interesting. And there's a couple different terms there maybe I should define because we can just call it an external review or a third-party review. There's also commonly referred to as a second opinion. And it's a bit confusing mm. because the first opinion on green actually comes from the issuer, say the World Bank. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have the second opinion saying yes or no, we think that's green. Gotcha. So just for the purpose of clarity here, Cicero is a nonprofit, yeah? Yes. And that's the parent institute. So this is where we started giving the second opinions on green bonds. And then three years ago, back in, well, a little over three years ago now, because it was 2018, we carved out a subsidiary that's for profit. And that's the Cicero Shades of Green. Okay. So our parent institution is the nonprofit Climate Research Institute. And we all sit in the same location. We share office space and co-mingle for, you know, lunch presentations and whatnot. But we are a for-profit subsidiary now. And so I have also transitioned from the nonprofit side to the for-profit side. We found that we couldn't keep up with demand in a professional way within this nonprofit research institute that's designed for long-term three, five-year research projects. Mm. And the bankers are calling saying, we need your opinion yesterday. So right. we had to reorganize a little bit to do that. So I actually sit in the for-profit arm now, and that's what is the service provider for investors. That makes sense. And obviously, the reason I'm asking is when you're purporting to be sort of a neutral assessor of greenness, offering these second opinions, the obvious question is, is there any conflict of interest ever? And who's funding you? Well, we are paid by the issuers okay. for the most part. And that's a model that is consistent throughout the green bond market. Okay. And yeah, there is potential for conflict of interest, of course, in any kind of setup. But it's common practice today. We are voluntarily governed by guidance from the International Capital Markets Association for external reviewers hmm. that goes through some guidance on avoiding conflict of interest. And so the way we do that, at least at Cicero Shades of Green, is to avoid giving any kind of advisory services or consulting on developing how to set up a green bond. We are only coming in after the green bond framework has been set up, and then we give our opinion, and then we go away. And we don't have any financial interest in the actual selling of the bond. 
Gotcha. Okay, that's a helpful clarification. So what's your position in this sector of green bond assessments? Like how many of them have you done or how much of the volume of the market do you cover? Well, we're one of the biggest provider of external reviews in the global market. Depending on how you count, we're usually either first or second in market share in the last few years, depending on if you count by the number of transactions under a bond framework or by the number of issuers. But what that means is we've worked with, I think at this point, close to 250 issuers around the globe. Mm. And that means we've had the chance to work with a huge variety of types of organizations in different countries. So of course, it started with the World Bank, as I mentioned. And then many of the other multilateral development banks issued green bonds. So we've reviewed almost all of those as well. You know, the Asian Development Bank, African Development Bank, et cetera. And then back in, I think it was 2014, the first municipality issued a green bond, and that was in Sweden. And then followed by provinces in Canada. Of course, the U.S. green muni market also has a lot of activity now. And then corporates started getting in the game around the same time. It was 2014 or 2015. The first corporate in the market was a real estate company in Sweden. Sweden has been a real forerunner in this market for a while. Mm -hmm. But then we've worked with corporations around the globe. We've worked with the biggest commercial bank out of China, ICBC. We've worked with governments and their sovereign bond issuance to review, for example, the, the government of Kenya, also Indonesia, for example, Iceland. So we've had a really interesting ride in following along with the diversification of the green bond market, not just in the type of issuers, but also in the region or the country that they're coming from. Gotcha. Okay. So essentially what you're doing is you're providing an initial check on the greenness of a financial instrument. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And so what we're doing is giving an opinion at the time of the bond issuance. So the investor can read our report. Hopefully that feeds into their investment decision, and then the bond is issued. And then there's this follow-up period where the bond issuer is encouraged to provide impact reports back to the investor, and then they can choose to have those reviewed as well, although I have to say there's not many in the market that do that today. Mm. So really, the primary work that we do is at the time of issuance of a bond, but there is also this really important work also to protect against greenwashing that comes after that. Great. You correctly detected that that was the question lurking in the back of my mind, so that's helpful. (laughs) So tell us about the ratings and the methodology. How does it work? We use what looks like a simple system on the surface of light, medium, and dark green ratings. So those are an overall rating. That's a conclusion of the reports that we provide to investors. The reason we moved to this rating system was to illustrate relative climate risk and to provide some type of comparison across the bonds for investors. We were actually having a lot of conversations with investors when we were initially doing second opinions before we developed this shading system. And the ask that we got was, how do we compare and how do we know if one is better than another? And couldn't you please give us a very detailed scoring system? Right. Because that's what they're used to with credit ratings, for example. Exactly. And the challenge with what we're doing is that a lot of it is qualitative. A lot of it is forward projected opinions based on climate scenarios, for example. And that's the type of thing that is very hard to be precise on because there are many different pathways to get to zero carbon. 
depending on what sector and where your starting point is. And so the way we're trying to do it is, you know, simplifying into these three buckets, light, medium, or dark green, because that's about as precise as we think we can be Hmm. and still show this relative spectrum of how green you are. So we use dark green to indicate the lowest level of climate risk, and that is essentially aligned with the Paris Agreement targets of two degrees or lower global warming by the end of the century. And the way we translate that by rule of thumb is essentially we need that to be at or very close to zero carbon in every sector by Mm mid-century. Now, of course, the concept of net zero means that you could have some sectors that are are doing more than others, but that's a rule of thumb guidance. So any investment today to be dark green in our system needs to have that in mind. So for example, if someone is building a building and they want to finance it with a green bond, we're asking, okay, how efficient is that building? And how much is it accounted for the changes in heat stress and flooding and other climate impacts that we see around the world today? Mm-hmm. So that we know in this building that's built today, it's going to last for 100 years, maybe more. We want to know that by the time we get to mid-century, that's pretty close to a passive house. So that's the framing we have is what does this mean in mid-century in relationship to zero carbon? And then we look at climate resiliency too. So the other end of the spectrum, just for contrast, we use light green to indicate an early step in that transition towards low carbon. It can actually involve really substantial emission reductions. It can have really strong impact, for example, if you measure that by avoided carbon. But it might mean that there's not a full transition away from fossil fuels. So what we're watching for for when we give a light green label is that we're not locking in fossil fuel use and extending the cumulative emissions over the lifetime of the asset. So for example, if you have energy efficiency improvements in a manufacturing plant that that runs on natural gas, for example, we would want to see that transition away from the natural gas fuel plans for a way to do that, to switch to sustainable biogas or, or whatever is relevant for that facility in a way that isn't just using the efficiency as a way to extend the lifetime and then thereby using more natural gas. Mm-hmm. So just to be super clear about it, if you had a bond that was going to finance a construction project, for example, or if you had a company where you did not have a reasonable expectation that all of their emissions would be zeroed out by 2050, but they did have some sort of an offset program that they were investing in in order to hit quote unquote net zero, they could still qualify for dark green. Probably not. And of course, it would depend on the context, but I'm saying probably not because we approach offsets with a, I would call healthy skepticism approach, Good, meaning that that. we would want the offsets to be the last resort Hmm. rather than the first resort. Okay. Now, given where we are today in 2022, we don't know all the answers for what is the perfect 2050 solution. We don't know precisely how some technologies will develop or how fast in which regions. But what we do know is that there are some questions about offsets. And if you're basing your transition strategy primarily on offsets, then you're not actually setting up your company to be sustainable in the long run. So that's what I mean by healthy skepticism. It's hard to completely rule that out because for some sectors it may be necessary, but we want to see that as a very last resort. Right. Okay. So 
Obviously, if you're trying to assess the probability that these instruments will lead to a net zero outcome by 2050, there have to be some scenarios embedded in that analysis. So how do you do that? Do you come up with your own scenarios? Do you reference like the IEA scenarios or what? We look at both the IEA scenarios and the suite of scenarios that are feeding into the IPCC. Okay. We don't develop our own scenarios. And in fact, we have some conversations with a previous guest you've had, Glenn Peters, who's at mm-hmm. the nonprofit Cicero Institute that we're quite embedded with. Yep. And one of the things that he's good at is comparing across scenarios and looking at, okay, in the majority of scenarios, this is what's happening in this time period in this sector. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we take our approach. And for example, the IEA scenarios are really commonly used in the financial sector and also with a lot of corporates because they're updated annually. They've got a shorter timeframe. They're in some ways a little bit more digestible, especially for the energy sector than the IPCC scenarios. And so Glenn maps those against the IPCC scenarios, but then we also take a deeper dive into the IEA scenarios into what we like to call building blocks. What are these chunks that that have to be achieved in order to reach the net zero target, for example, in the net zero scenario? But it can take a lot of interpretation. There's not just one pathway because there's not just one scenario and there's not just one model. And they all have different assumptions and different attributes that require actually a fair amount of expertise to interpret. So what we're trying to do is take that bird's eye view and say, okay, across all of these modeling platforms, here's what they have in common. So for example, on nuclear, which maybe we'll talk a bit more about later, but the majority of scenarios that are reaching 1.5 degrees if we look at the whole IPCC grouping, and that's quite a few scenarios. I don't have the number in front of me of how many that would be, but the majority of them are showing a pretty substantial increase in nuclear energy in order to reach 1.5 degrees limit on global warming by the end of the century without overshooting and then sort of backtracking and seeing if we can reverse the climate impacts that we've we've already caused by releasing emissions into the atmosphere. Mm. So that's the type of rule of thumb we look at. Okay, so the majority are showing nuclear increases. Does that mean we have to use nuclear? No. Does it mean that nuclear can make it easier to reach 1.5? We would say yes. So that's sort of the type of interpretation that we're doing at a high level. Gotcha. So how is this rating progress going so far? I mean, how many of the instruments that you rated have achieved dark green? And what are the sectors that you've been mostly assessing? You can think about it as more or less a bell curve, I guess maybe a rather steep bell curve, where we have the majority being medium green. This is speaking for the assessments we did in the last year, where we had a handful in dark green, a handful in light green, and then the vast majority in medium green. Mm. That's changed a little bit over the years, and I think we've seen more light green in, I would say, the last two years, as there's become more interest in that early transition space that we use light green to signify. And it also reflects that it's harder to achieve a dark green in our rating system. It means taking into account the resiliency and the zero carbon pathways and really being at the top of your game in whichever sector you're in right now. So the vast majority are medium green. And maybe I can explain a bit about how we would get to a medium green rating. Sure. We start with what are the project categories or assets that the bond would be investing in? So we start at the called the micro level. So if a green bond is intending to finance green buildings, Then we start looking at what are the energy efficiency requirements? How do they look at 
their supply chain emissions if it's a new construction building? How are they located in relationship to public transportation? Does that have any impacts on transportation emissions? Are they looking at resiliency to changing heat stress, for example, in a lot of regions? And then we wrap that into, okay, maybe this is medium green to use an example. Then we look at the balance of allocation of proceeds that's expected by the issuer. So a lot of times the green bond framework will have a variety of categories. They may be investing in green buildings. They may be investing in transportation solutions and adaptation projects, let's say. Then we ask about the planned allocation. If the majority of what they're going to be spending the bond proceeds on is green buildings, and we've rated that medium green, then that sways that overall rating towards medium green, but we're not done with our assessment yet. We then take a look at the overall issuer governance. And by governance, I mean the ability of the corporation or the issuer to manage climate risks associated with the green bond over time. So as I noted before, we're giving our opinion at the time of issuance. So there are things that we don't know. We don't know how the issuer is going to follow up. So the issuer says maybe they are going to achieve this level of certification for their green buildings, and they are planning to look at the urban development plans and locate them near public transportation. So that sounds very good, but how do we know that they're going to follow up? Then we want to find out at the corporate level, do they have, for example, a green bond committee? Some issuers do. Some issuers have climate targets, and then they follow those up over time. Or sometimes if they have goals to reduce supply chain emissions, we want to understand if they have changes in how they're going to contract suppliers, if they have reviews of of environmental or social risks on their supply chain. So we look at all that type of thing. How are they going to achieve the goals that they've set forth in this framework? Is there anything at the corporate level that might influence how they implement that bond over time? Mm. So we call that our governance assessment. So that's looking beyond the bond framework and looking at the whole of issuer and how that could impact the framework. And that can help sway our borderline cases. So if we had project allocation that was between medium and dark green, and was quite even in the middle, we don't know which way to go, and the governance was very, very strong, then we could sway that over to a dark green overall rating. So that's how it all wraps up together. That's really helpful. So what are some of the sectors that you're typically assessing? Most of the green bonds are in energy, transportation, and buildings. Okay. We see very few green bonds looking at adaptation projects, for example. Right. We see a few in waste and water, but not as often. Interesting. So how are the ratings used in practice? I mean, are they specifically used to assess a company's creditworthiness, like a credit rating from S&P or Moody's, or to determine eligibility for investment by different kinds of institutions, or what? Well, we like to think of it as kind of a credit rating, but on climate risk. I think it really depends on the type of investor for how they're using it. Okay. So investors, I refer to them in one lump group, but they're extremely diverse. And there's diversity in the US, there's diversity in Europe and Asia and beyond that shows there's some investors that will buy anything, honestly. <laughs> there's some investors that are really looking to build out their green bond portfolio or may have a target in their mandate to increase green bond holdings. Mm -hmm. And some, it doesn't really matter as long as it has a green label with an external review. Others are more sophisticated and more discerning. If they are really looking to 
minimize climate risk in their portfolio, or some are even looking to tell this real impact story. If they have an investor group that's really interested in this storytelling around responsible investors, we invested in this project and it provided so many gallons of clean water to this type of population in need. So there's a lot of different types of mandates out there and desires. So what we know is just really some anecdotes that we can provide. So what we hear is that when we give a green rating on a bond, that that gives it more credibility, regardless of whether we're saying it's light, medium, or dark green. Mm. And that's just something we've heard anecdotally back, that it didn't matter so much whether it was a light green rating. Actually, investors were thinking, oh, this is a quality green mark from a good reviewer. We're going to include in our portfolios. On the other hand, I've also heard anecdotally from one investor that they exclude light green from their portfolios, Hmm. that for them, they want to concentrate on the dark and medium green. So it's a real mixed bag. And I think there's been one conference paper that's been put out by a couple of grad students in France that I had the opportunity to talk with. And they took our data, basically, it's all on our website, you know, the ratings we have for different issuers, and tried to map that with what they could find out on investors. And they found for the dark and medium labeled bonds, they were more so-called responsible investors or self-identifying responsible investors that were purchasing them. That is investors maybe that sign up to the UN principles for responsible investment, the UNPRI, for example. So I think there are some discerning investors, but it's not across the board. Okay. So we've discussed green bonds previously on this show in our conversation with the CEO of the Climate Bonds Initiative, Sean Kidney, in episode 35. Since then, green bonds have really started to raise some serious capital, and people are looking for independent assessments on exactly how legit these bonds are. So this is obviously where you come into play. This green bond market has taken off so much, it's really incredible, with lots of different developments, different types of issuers, different types of labels, and so on. Can you speak to kind of how the market is developing and what kind of role you're playing in mobilizing capital to provide the solutions to climate change? Yes. First, I guess I think it's a stretch to say that we're mobilizing capital. What I like to think optimistically is that we're providing transparency so investors can make that decision. Fair enough. I hope that's what's happening. I hope we're making it easier for them to direct capital to a greener direction. Mm -hmm. But the market has really taken off. That's definitely a correct characterization. And not only in growth, but in diversity also of labeling. So I mentioned before the diversity of the issuer types across different regions and different countries. We've also seen this, I would say, proliferation of labeling. So you can be green, you can be a transition bond, you can be a sustainable bond, you can be a sustainable linked bond, you can be a gender bond if you are targeting programs supporting women, for example. So there's mm. there's name your rainbow color and there's probably a bond for it now. This could be confusing, and I think it is confusing for investors. It's certainly a little confusing for me. What we're doing, at least, is labeling green bonds, and green is almost always used to indicate a climate bond. Almost all of the green-labeled bonds are focusing on climate change mitigation, just to a smaller extent, climate adaptation. To an even smaller extent, they include a little bit of biodiversity or potentially conservation. So the fact that there's now this proliferation of labels, I think it means a couple of things. I mean, one is that the demand is so strong from investors for anything that's in this sustainable area that it means you can do a lot of different things, for better or worse. But it also means that 
it's attracting issuers that maybe wouldn't have considered themselves as a type of company that would issue a green bond before. And I think that's changing. That's changing really rapidly. Hmm. So what does that mean for our role? It means that I think our role is even more important in providing transparency and not just us, but anyone that's doing external reviews in the market and providing that check, because it does mean that you can have green bonds coming to the market that are maybe having a little bit of questionable characterization around them. And then it's really important to get that second opinion and really important for investors to start asking questions and doing their homework as well. Hmm. Well, to that point, does your work in rating these bonds give you any insight into what percentage of purported green bonds are really green and they're not just marketing? I mean, for example, I've seen a few issuances in the past several years that have purported to be green bonds, but that seem to be anything but green to me. Like Toyota has just issued $7.5 billion in green bonds that finance Prius sales, which those are not straight EVs. <laughs> Saudi Arabia, the world's number one oil exporter is readying its first ever green bond. Qatar's government is also eyeing the market. And last September, Adani Green Energy, a subsidiary of Adani Group, listed $750 million in green bonds. And I've heard rumors about certifying Adani corporate as green as long as they commit to stop expanding coal interests and so on. But Adani Group is also the biggest coal company in India. So yeah, I think there are some questionable elements there. I mean, how do you deal with things like that? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, interactive transcripts of our interviews, our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Plato Investment Management, with about $7 billion U.S. billion under management, has launched a new global net-zero investment fund that short-sells dirty stocks to drive down carbon emissions and maximize profits in an investment strategy known as green shorting. Initial targets for the fund include AGL, the largest energy retailer and largest operator of coal-fired power plants in Australia, and Australia's national airline, Qantas. 
AGL and Qantas have both set targets to get to net zero emissions by 2050, but the fund managers don't believe they actually have a path to get there. AGL reported a loss of about $2 billion Australian dollars, or about $1.4 billion U.S., for its 2021-2022 fiscal year, and blamed the energy transition for the downturn. Other targets for the fund include Singapore Airlines and Hong Kong Electric. Plato Managing Director Don Hampson said a portfolio's carbon intensity can be reduced by up to 80% through divestment before returns start to suffer. We short stocks that are higher carbon with poor return outlook and long stocks with low carbon on average with good return averages, he explained. And Plato Portfolio Manager David Allen said the Australian market index ASX is a prime target for green shorting because of its high concentration of carbon-intensive industries such as mining and agriculture that will be on the losing end of the energy transition. The companies that are going to be rewarded are going to be the ones that are on the right side of the debate, he said. The fund says it is attracting the interest of a number of large superannuation funds, known as employee pension funds in the U.S., that are looking for sustainable investment strategies. Item 2. According to the new Energy Transition Investment Trends 2022 report from Bloomberg NEF, or BNEF, Global investment in the energy transition totaled $755 billion in 2021, 50% more than in 2019. Investment rose in nearly every sector, but dipped for Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.